0: Uh, Before I moved to Morgantown to help start the church here, I co-led a team of about 10 Ohio State University College students up to Bowling Green, Ohio, for the purpose of starting a church up there. Uh, The strategy we were going to use that summer when we were starting the church was the same strategy that we were going to use here in Morgantown. We wanted to start a campus organization where we could advertise to students, we could use rooms on campus, and then eventually branch out into the community. Now, when we moved to Morgantown to start the church here, and we went to the university and asked, what do we need to do to start a campus organization? We were told that we needed to have 10 college students who were full-time, and three or four of them had to be officers. You needed a president and a vice president and a secretary and a treasurer. But when we moved up to Bowling Green, Ohio to start a church near the campus of Bowling Green State University, when I went to ask how we start a campus organization there, I was told all you needed to do is have one college student in your group and that student did not need to be full-time. And that was very good news for us because we didn't know anyone on campus. So I decided to enroll at the university and I took a one-hour course, I took softball. Now, normally, taking softball would not be a big deal, but in this occasion, it actually ended up being kind of a big deal. And the reason it was a big deal for me is that for some reason, that summer, all the football players from Bowling Green State University decided to play softball. And so when I went to this class, I was this small, thin guy at the time, anyway, and most of the class were these football players. Now, normally that wouldn't be a big deal either, except for some odd reason, they put me on third base. Now, I don't know if it's true or not, but I understood at the time, or at least I believed at the time, that the balls that are hit to third base come the hardest and the fastest. And so I was not happy at all to be on third base. In fact, every day when I had that class, I would be standing on third base and I would just be praying, Lord, protect me because these guys would go up to the bat. Some of them would actually look right at me or point at me as if the ball was coming right at me. And I found that I was very afraid. Now, that class turned out okay because none of the guys ended up being able to hit it my direction but there was one positive thing that came out of being on third base, and that is, I think it was the first time in my life when I was playing baseball that I was 100% engaged. When I was playing third base, I had to pay attention all the time. And this wasn't true normally because I'm not real good at baseball, and oftentimes when i played baseball or softball in the past, I'm usually out in right field. And, and those of you that play right field, especially as you're growing up, as you're younger, you realize that there's not much action in right field. When my kids were playing baseball, the kids in right field oftentimes would even sit down. They could almost go to sleep out in right field. You did not have to be engaged in the game. But if you were playing third base, you had to be alert the whole time. The last couple of weeks, we've been quoting from 1 Peter 5.8. <clears throat> it says, be serious, be alert, your adversary the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour it says be serious be alert that command to be serious i mean i think it means have the idea take this thing seriously be mindful of this this is a reality this is something that we might have to face be serious and then he also says be alert We need to be vigilant, we need to recognize that we have an adversary that's after us. And unfortunately, many times as Christians, we're just not living our lives under the reality that we have an enemy that's opposed to us, the devil and his helpers. Now today's takeaway is gonna be the same takeaway I had last week, namely don't give the devil an opportunity to operate. This takeaway is based on Ephesians 4 and verse 26 where we read, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. And I mentioned last week that I felt that this meant that when we are allowing ourselves to continue in anger, we give the devil a place from which he can operate. That's what that word opportunity means. It means a place to stand, a place to operate or a foothold. And there are things sometimes we do in our lives that give the devil a foothold. One of them is anger. Last week, I talked also about the fact that unforgiveness can have the same effect. If we do not forgive other people, the devil can use that situation in our lives to take ground for his kingdom instead of God's. Now, for us to be able to confront this enemy we have, we need to know how he operates. And so last week, I gave you two ways in which I think the devil operates. The first one was deceit that the devil is a master at lying, he lies about us, he lies to us about other people, about God, he lies to us about God's word, he is the master of lies, even when he tells the truth, it's a lie. And we need to recognize that, that all of us, I think, have things in our lives that we are believing that are not true, and the devil loves to whisper those kinds of things in our ears. Have you identified what those lies are that tend to grip you in your life? Then I talked about the fact that he's skilled at spreading division, that the devil's strategy is to divide and to conquer. And so if he can get us as Christians to be fighting one another, then we won't be going after him. If we're fighting one another, we won't be about the mission that God has given to us. And so we need to realize that many times within the church even, when there are disagreements and arguments, that it's possible that the devil is behind it that he wants us to be fighting one another instead of him. Well, today I wanna look at three additional ways in which I'm convinced that the devil works. One of them is disease. I think the devil sometimes works through disease. Now, I need to mention right up front here that I don't believe that most disease that we face in this world is caused directly by the devil. I don't think that that's the case. From my perspective, most of the diseases that we face in this world are a direct result of the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God, sin came into the world, death came into the world. Suddenly it was a world with thorns and thistles with spiders. It was a world with poisonous snakes. It became a different world and sickness is part of that. And so we know that this is true even in our own lives. A lot of the health issues that we have came from our parents. They were passed on. We have our parents' genes. And so a lot of the sickness that we face, in fact, I think most of it is just a result of the fact that we live in a broken world. But having said that, we recognize that there are examples in the Bible where the devil was involved with disease. The first one that comes to my mind immediately is the story of Job, you remember how Job was struck by Satan and he was struck with these boils these painful boils from the head of his, top of his head to the heel of his feet he had all these painful boils and also it was I think very itchy it says he was like scratching himself Well, those boils that he had were a direct result of Satan attacking him. Now, I want to mention immediately and and make sure you hear this, I don't believe the devil has the right to attack any of us in the physical realm unless God gives permission. In the story of Job, God gave the devil permission to do that because there was a particular goal in mind. I've mentioned before the last couple of weeks that Satan has no authority over Christians. He does have power, but not authority. I do not believe he has the right to attack us with some kind of disease, but if God gives permission, an example in the New Testament where God gave permission was the Apostle Paul. Let me set the context of this story. He was writing to the Corinthians, and he talks about this affliction that he had. The Apostle Paul was someone that was used by God in tremendous ways, but in serving God, he had to go through a lot. I mean, this was a guy that was stoned on a couple of occasions with stones. This was a guy that was beaten many times. He went through an awful lot of suffering. And God, I think, as a way of encouraging Paul, revealed things to Paul that no one has ever seen. Paul describes the fact that, that God led him to this place where he saw things and experienced things that no person had ever experienced before. And these were things that I think were meant for Paul to hold on to as he faced various trials. However, because of the nature of these things, because they were so amazing, there was the potential that Paul would become proud. And so we read in verse seven of 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul said, "Therefore." so that I would not exalt myself. A thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to torment me, so that I would not exalt myself. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times to take it away from me, but he said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. Now, this is hard for us to understand. But Paul had some kind of a physical affliction. Most people feel with was some kind of an eye condition. It might have been a stuttering issue. It could have been something else. We don't know exactly what it was, but God gave permission to this, this demonic being to go after Paul in order to keep him humble. And in this case, when Paul prayed about it, God said, my grace is enough for you. This is a good thing in your life because God could not use Paul if he became proud or it would at least hinder the work that God wanted to accomplish in Paul's life. A lot of the miracles that Jesus healed in the New Testament related, or the healings that he did related to diseases that I think were just normal diseases. Sometimes it was a person who was born blind or they suffered some other physical condition. But in the gospels, we also have examples where it was also demonic. For example, in Luke chapter 13, we read about someone that Jesus healed who had been afflicted for 18 years. In Luke 13 and verse 10, we read, as he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, a woman was there who had been disabled by a spirit for over 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. Now, as we continue reading, Jesus healed this woman and it caused an issue because he had done this healing on the Sabbath day and the religious leaders didn't like it. And they confronted Jesus about it and his response is found in verse 16 of Luke 13. He said to them, Satan has bound this woman, a daughter of Abraham for 18 years. Shouldn't she be untied from this bondage on the Sabbath day? Now again, I think most of the diseases in this world and most of the ailments in this world have little or nothing to do with the devil, but sometimes they do, we just don't know many times. And once again, I want us to understand that I don't think the devil has the right to afflict any of us, except that he gets special permission somehow. Now what do we do with this? Well, I think sometimes when we're sick, you know, we wanna ask God to deliver us from what we're going through. And we recognize that this is a physical sickness perhaps. It also may be a spiritual sickness. We just do not know many times. And so I don't believe that it is inappropriate to pray the way Paul did. He said, please take this away from me. Please remove this demonic presence from my life. I know several months ago when I went uh, went through my affliction and my appendix turned gangrene, I began to pray that God would heal me and I didn't know if it was a physical thing. I didn't know if it was a spiritual thing. I believed in a God who was able to heal though. I believed in a God who was greater than Satan and so my prayer really was, Lord, if this is physical, heal me. But if this is something that's caused by the devil, I pray you heal me and remove him from my life. Put a hedge of protection as it's called in the Bible. Put a hedge of protection around me. In either case, God restored me to health. Now in addition to deceit and division and disease, there's a fourth way in which I think the devil often operates and it's through disqualification. Disqualification. Jesus had just been baptized and he was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness where he'd be fasting for 40 days. And if you know the story, at the end of those 40 days, the the devil showed up and began to tempt him in some very specific ways. I'd like to suggest that the timing of this temptation was incredibly important. It was very, very strategic. Because if the devil could get Jesus to sin at that point before he even began his public ministry, it would be game over. And I think this is often what the devil tries to do. He tries to get us disqualified. If Jesus had given in to any of those temptations, he would no longer be qualified to be our savior. And the devil knew that. And so he came at him hard and fast, right at the outset of ministry. The Apostle Paul was someone who was concerned about this very issue of being disqualified. He said, I buffet my body and make it my slave. By the way, he didn't say I buffet my body. I buffet my body, I make it my slave, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Disqualified. He recognized that he was in this spiritual race. He was serving Christ. He wanted to go the distance. He wanted to end well. And he recognized that it was possible for something to come along related to, in this case, his flesh, where he would yield to some kind of sin and suddenly he'd be sidelined. Over the years, I've known a few people that have been sidelined. Two come to mind immediately. Two individuals who decided that that they were gonna serve the Lord full-time. They felt like God was leading them to apply with a particular mission organization and begin serving the Lord full-time. And they began to raise their support and everything was going well, but they were not mindful of the fact that the moment they decided that they were gonna serve the Lord full-time, that suddenly there'd be a bullseye on their back. And these two individuals, these are two different situations, these two individuals both gave in to sexual sin And as a result of that, the mission organization would not accept them. And so they were sidelined. Now I'm not suggesting if we blow it, if we make a big mistake that we're sidelined for good, although in the case of these two, they no longer were able to serve full time. That's what it meant in their situation. Now I'm mindful of this myself. I'm not too proud as to think that I would be beyond such a temptation. The Apostle Paul said, if you think you stand, you better take heed lest you fall. When I look at someone like King David, who was a godly man, a man after God's own heart, and I see that he fell into sin, committed adultery, and then was guilty of murder, I realize I could do the same. And I don't want to be that person who served the Lord for 30 or 40 years and then come toward the end and do something that puts a shadow over the whole thing. Such an idea scares me to death. But I recognize this is what the devil wants to do. And many times if you decide that you're going to serve the Lord in some special way, recognize that things may come your way. The devil, especially at the outset of something new, may want to come in and trip you up and get you sidelined before you even begin ministry. The final point I want to make related to how the devil works, and he works in other ways than these, but these are the main ones, I think. In addition to deceit and division and disease sometimes and disqualification, the last one is death or destruction. Death or destruction. A woman who attended my father's church when I was growing up is in prison as we speak. Uh, She has been there for, if I remember correctly, the last 30 to 35 years. She's there because she was convicted of killing her husband. To this day, she says she didn't do it, but the circumstances surrounding all of this were very suspicious, and she was kind of caught doing this. What I understand about the situation is that two times before she killed her husband, she had faked an injury at a department store. She pretended to slip and fall and injure herself. She had one of those neck braces and she sued the department store, two different stores on two different occasions. And in both occasions, I understand, it never went to court. They settled out of court and she got a sum of money. At that point, she began to eye her husband's life insurance money. And so, according to the information from the trial she drugged her husband he had had some surgery he had pain medicine she drugged her husband and then she burned down the mobile home where they lived she got caught though because she said that she was out washing laundry at the laundry mat when the fire took place and when they investigated it they found out that the laundry mat had not been open that particular evening and her entire case fell apart the devil loves To destroy the devil loves the cur to kill. In John eight and verse forty four, we read Jesus said these words: "You are of your father the devil." He's speaking, by the way, to the religious leaders who were going to be going after him to crucify him. You are of your father the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. In what sense was Was Satan a murderer from the beginning? What is he talking about there? Well, I think it's a reference to the fact that because of Satan's temptation, all of us die. Because of the temptation that took place in the Garden of Eden, all of us now are facing death. And it was all because of that temptation of the devil. He's a murderer, he wanted to destroy and kill the human race. And this is oftentimes how the devil works. The devil is behind most, if not all, of the persecutions that take place against Christians throughout the world. I think he's behind that. And so, and you say, well, why would God allow a persecution to take place where Christians are dying in different countries around the world? Well, his own son Jesus died also. As an example, so will his followers sometimes. But the devil's behind these persecutions And this is what I think Peter was talking about in 1 Peter 5, the people to whom he was writing were ones who were under persecution. And he reminded them that the devil's like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. In the last days, I think there'll be a worldwide persecution against the people of God. I think sometimes the devil is behind things like suicide, Not always, there are other explanations many times, just like with disease, there are sometimes physical reasons, there are other reasons why certain things happen, but this is also one of the ways he works. I think he's behind mass shootings that take place. The bottom line is he hates humanity. If a person dies without Christ, he knows that that person will not inherit eternal life, that that's a person that will be in his kingdom forever. And if he could destroy the life of a Christian, he knows that that person, again, won't be able to serve Christ. And so he hates, he hates people. And he's about just, not just death, but all kinds of destruction. Recently, I was in a Bible study with some friends of mine, and we were talking about the story of how Jesus and his disciples came across a guy that had a bunch of demons in him And Jesus confronted this guy and and asked the demons the name and the, the demon said, well, our name is Legion because we're many, there were more than one. And then they asked permission to be cast into this herd of pigs. And Jesus gave them permission. Well, if you know this story, the demons entered the pigs and the pigs ran into the water and they drowned. Now, we don't know for sure whether or not the demons knew that would happen One of my commentaries, though, made this point that this is an example of how the devil just wants to destroy senselessly, that that's what this was about, just destroy life, whether it's human life, whether it's other life. This is how he works. And he can destroy through other means. For example, with the story of Job, and again, only with God's permission, but we read how he created thunder and lightning to strike upon the animals of Job and the servants upon Job died because of lightning. And also he was the one behind a storm that destroyed the house, probably a tornado that destroyed the house where Job's children lived. And so we realize the devil has a lot of power. Thankfully, again, he doesn't have a lot of authority over the lives of Christians. This is one reason why the way it's important that you put your trust in Christ. Make sure you're in the kingdom of heaven and not the kingdom of the devil. I want to get real practical here. What do we do with all of this? Well, as Christians, I'm convinced that we have actually three main enemies that we have to confront. One is the world, one is the flesh, and one is the devil. The world represents this system that we're all operating under. The world has its own values, its own morals, its own philosophies. It's it's got its own reasons for things. And of course, the devil is called the, the god of this age, the God of this world. The world is our enemy. This is why John wrote in 1 John, don't love the world or the things of the world because if you do, the love of the Father is not in you. And so we have this enemy called the world. We have another enemy called the flesh. It's our own flesh. In Galatians chapter five, Paul lists some of the fruit or evidence of the flesh in our lives. It includes things like lust and, and anger and jealousy and And all kinds of things like that are are part of our fleshly desire. And and it's an enemy that we constantly fight. And then there's a third enemy, who's the Satan. Who's Satan. Now, I used to believe that the way this thing worked was that you had the world, the flesh, and Satan attacking us like three separate enemies. Recently, I came across a chart that kind of illustrated this, where it had the world, the flesh, and Satan attacking the Christian. But there's a better diagram that I think illustrates what it's really like. It's a diagram where you have a big circle that includes Satan, then a smaller circle, which is the world, then a smaller one yet, which is the flesh, and all of these are involved in our lives as enemies. Sometimes the struggle we have is mostly just a fleshly one, but sometimes the devil's involved as well. Sometimes it's a worldly struggle. Part of our challenge is to identify the nature of the battle that we're facing. And again, many times it's a combination. Let me give you an example. Jesus said that you shouldn't look at a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery already. And so when we're we're thinking of someone other than our spouse, there's an adultery that's carried out in our hearts. And so we as Christians don't wanna be thinking these kind of lustful thoughts. There have been times though when I've been driving or whatever and I'll pass a billboard and I'll see a picture of a woman that's not dressed well, scantily dressed woman and I'll begin to think sexual thoughts that are not good. And sometimes when that happens, I'll just start thinking about something else or maybe I'll start praying about it and the thoughts will will disappear. But there have been other times when I tried to stop thinking those thoughts and it didn't work. And I realized, well, this is a fleshly thing and, and the world was part of the problem because it planted the thought in the first place. But I'll struggle with the thoughts and I'll, I'll try to come up with Bible verses. I'll try to think other things. But there have been times I've struggled with those thoughts for like a half hour and they just wouldn't leave. And then suddenly the thought comes to my mind, could the devil be behind this? I mean, I'm reminded of the Lord's prayer. It says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That, that can be translated either, either deliver us from evil or deliver us from the evil one. And I realized that sometimes these thoughts in my mind are not mine at all. The devil planted them in there. And there have been occasions where this happened. I'd been struggling for some time. Nothing was working. And then I thought to pray something along the lines of, God, if this is from the devil, I pray you protect me from him. I pray, pray that you remove him. From me, And instantly, when that's happened on occasion, the thought has disappeared. In fact, an hour will pass, and I'll realize I haven't struggled with those thoughts for over an hour. And this is oftentimes the way the three cooperate. We've got a world that's going against us. We've got our own flesh that is inclined to some of these things. And then we have the devil as well that's fighting us. Now again, our takeaway here today is don't give the devil an opportunity to operate. And my goal last week in this is to help us begin to recognize certain ways in which the devil works. I I want us to be aware and, and begin to see that when certain things are happening, maybe this is a spiritual battle. But next week, in particular, I want to address what we do about it. What do we have at our disposal to help us win the battle against the evil one? And so, Lord willing, I want to be talking about that next week. Uh, Let me close, though, this morning with, uh, as I do, many weeks, by just putting an appeal out there to those of you that maybe don't know where you stand with God. Uh, We read in the New Testament that all of us have sinned. We all fall short of God's standard of rightness and wrongness. We know that. We all blow it. And all of our efforts to get right with God don't work. We can't clean ourselves up enough to merit eternal life Heaven's a perfect place. We're just not perfect people. And so according to the New Testament, we're disqualified from going to heaven and we can't fix it. Even if today we decided I'm gonna stop sinning, we couldn't stop. We can't erase the past and we can't make any promises about the future. No, we need a deliverer, a savior. And this is why Jesus came into this world Jesus Christ came into this world specifically to live a sinless life so that the sins of the world could be charged against him. Jesus became sin for us so that God could declare us righteous. He died in our place and for our sin. The justice of God against the sin of the world was poured out against Jesus. And he did die and he was buried, but three days later, he rose again from the dead. The payment that he had made on our behalf was accepted by God the Father. And so how do we receive this forgiveness, this gift of eternal life? Well, it's through faith. Putting your confidence in Jesus Christ. The most famous verse in the Bible is John 3, 16. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. If you've never come to a point in your life where you've acknowledged your sinful condition and your need for a savior, I encourage you to turn to Jesus Christ for that. And if you'd like to know more about it, please just get in contact with us and we'd love to send you some information about what it means to put your trust in Jesus Christ and how to begin a relationship with God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, thank you for the victory we have through Jesus Christ. Again, greater is he who's in us than the one who's in this world, the devil or the world or the flesh, Lord. You're greater than all these things. I ask you to give us eyes to see, though, the battle around us, to recognize that, that we are in a battle, that, that we, we cannot be ones who are just taking this lightly, ones who are kind of sleeping in the outfield. We want to be alert and ready and recognize, oh Lord, the battle. Give us the grace to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.